This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Powered by Righteous Media. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 207. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. This episode, we're going to talk about freedom. Freedom. What does it really mean to be free in 2023? Are any of us really free anymore? What does freedom mean? But before we get to all that, there's plenty of news in the world. And this is still very much a time to stay vigilant. Tonight, a disabled Navy veteran calling out embattled Congressman George Santos. He should be ashamed of himself, but he doesn't have shame. He does. He's a psychopath. Richard Ossoff claims Santos helped to raise thousands of dollars for a cancer treatment for his therapy dog and then never came through with the cash. I was so livid that I realized that this guy is now a serving congressman. He doesn't deserve that job. The dog, Sapphire, never received the treatment and later died. Yep. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's the line I used to use all the time. And I bring it back selectively for times when something is particularly infuriating. And this is one of those times. If somebody or something is screwing people, you know it's going to include some veterans. And that definitely includes George Santos, the newly elected congressman from New York. Now, I shared last week that I think the media and the Democratic Party obsession over Santos is over the top. And I still believe that now. But I want to talk about how it's a symptom of a larger issue. A failure to hold scumbags in power accountable, especially in Washington. And that's the fault of both parties. The dysfunctional duopoly fails America daily in more ways than we can count. And in this case, with Santos, we can't count on the House Ethics Committee any more than we could count on the Ethics Committee in the past, or even impeachment committees. We can't count on Congress to police itself. And we can't count on politicians to check their own. It's beyond their grandstanding and deflecting and camera chasing and point scoring. This, with Santos, this is a job for the FBI. This dude's dog is dead. Countless people have been lied to and ripped off, 
And Santos is beyond a joke. And Santos doesn't deserve freedom. He doesn't deserve to be free. Santos shouldn't be in Congress. He should be in jail. And he's not the only one. There are lots of bad dudes who are a threat to America and should be in jail, including four members of the far-right Oath Keepers group that were found guilty of seditious conspiracy this week for taking part in the January 6th assault on the Capitol. A 12-member jury found that Oath Keeper members David Marshall, Joseph Hackett, Roberto Menueta, and Edward Vallejo guilty of seditious conspiracy. Seditious conspiracy is a very rarely prosecuted Civil War era law that prohibits plotting to destroy or overthrow the government and carries up to 20 years in prison. And these guys are getting that. And you may not be keeping track. Most Americans are not keeping track. But prosecutors have brought criminal charges now against more than 950 people following the attack on the Capitol. And Hackett and Marshall and other Oath Keepers, they hit the Capitol in a military-style stack formation, and they entered the building. And Vallejo, a U.S. Army veteran that's a disgrace to the service and to the uniform, was an ally of Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, and he drove from Arizona to prepare for what he called the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, at a hotel outside Washington on January 6th. These guys were all intimately, deeply involved. And they all need to lose their freedom. Lock them up and throw away the key. Lock them up. Lock them all up. Because they're a part of the number one threat to our national security in America. What I've called the American insurgency. And speaking of more bad dudes who are a threat to America and should be in jail, three active duty Marines were arrested this week who work in intelligence, and they were arrested for participating in the January 6th attack. These three guys are the first active duty members to be arrested in connection with January 6th since Marine Major Christopher Warnagurus, who was taken into custody back in May 2021 on nine charges. All three of these Marines, who were arrested two years after the attack, work in jobs connected to intelligence. They're not truck drivers. They're not logistics people. They were intelligence Marines. They were charged with knowingly entering a restricted building, two counts of disorderly conduct, and parading or picketing inside the U.S. Capitol. Throw the book at them. This is a very big deal. These are Marines, active-duty Marines who work in intelligence. It's terrible, and it's treasonous, but it's not surprising. The American insurgency is far-reaching. It's real. It's our number one national security threat, and it's not going away. And we must stay vigilant. And speaking of more bad dudes who are a threat to America, should lose their freedom and be in jail, failed GOP candidate Solomon Pena was arrested on suspicion of orchestrating shootings at the homes of Democrats in New Mexico this week. This guy's a former Republican candidate for New Mexico's legislature, who police say claimed election fraud after his defeat. And he's been arrested for orchestrating a bunch of shootings at democratically elected leaders in the state. He lost his run for House District 14, and he was arrested for paying and conspiring with four guys to shoot at the homes of two state legislators and two county commissioners in December and January. And he tried to participate in at least one of them. All this stuff happened just in the last week. 
all these people were locked up, arrested, and imprisoned. The American insurgency, that's what this is. The threat is real and rising. And it's fueled by the growing threat of gun violence, which again reared its destructive head this week multiple times. As you probably now know, 11 people were killed and at least nine others were injured by a gunman who took fire at a dancing studio in Monterey Park, California. This is just the latest. At least 30 people have been shot, seven fatally in weekend shootings across Chicago. And in fact, 39 mass shootings have taken place across America in just the first three weeks of 2023. And our enemies are celebrating. The American insurgency, the exploding gun violence, Americans killing other Americans. This is Putin's dream. Speaking of Putin, he continues to obviously wage war in Ukraine. And I do a segment every week on News Nation talking about Ukraine on Thursdays. But last Thursday, it was bumped for breaking Alec Baldwin news. And I almost stuck around to react to that news too. I didn't, but this is what I would have said. As a former infantry and military police soldier, I've got experience around weapons. I've also worked on films, including a big-budget film called Green Zone with Matt Damon. And in my view, it's inexcusable that the armor gave Alec Baldwin a live round. It's that professional armor's job to ensure accidents don't happen. It's her job to ensure that the round in the chamber isn't live. She failed. A woman tragically lost her life, and that armor must be held accountable. That armor must go to jail and lose her freedom. As far as the assistant director and Alec Baldwin himself, I don't know what the law determines. But I think this will and has already changed the way weapons are handled and regulated on film sets forever. I'm sure that any insurance company covering a film will now require it, in addition to states where films are happening. It's also maybe a good reason to hire more veterans to be armors, because we know a lot about weapons. And there's a giant teachable moment here for the entire world. Never handle a weapon you haven't cleared and checked yourself. We learn this in basic training in the Army. There are no accidental discharges. There are only negligent discharges. And if you want a way to remember this, there's an acronym we also learned in the Army. THINK. T-H-I-N-K. T. Treat every weapon as if it's loaded. H. Handle every weapon with care. I. Identify the target before you fire. N. Never point the muzzle at anything you don't intend to shoot. K. Keep the weapon unsafe and your finger off the trigger until you intend to fire. Think. T-H-I-N-K. It's another way that we can all stay vigilant. Weapons are everywhere in America. And they're a threat. Not just to politicians but also to our families and to our children. And remembering think is one more way we can stay vigilant because the shootings continue to take place all across America and only in America. But outside of America, a different kind of shooting continues, inside Ukraine. But thankfully, in support of the Ukrainians, soon that shooting will include American tank rounds. Finally, American tanks are on the way to Ukraine. The U.S. announced this week they will send 31 M1 Abrams battle tanks. And our friend and guest from the last episode, Dan Lamoth of the Washington Post, said the story. 
If you haven't heard that episode, go back and check it out. He was traveling with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he had an overview of the weapons that were on their way and the weapons that might come, including 31 U.S. main battle tanks, enough for a Ukrainian battalion. The U.S. is also going to send eight M88 recovery vehicles, these big, beastly track vehicles that function like tow trucks for the tanks. Now, it's not going to happen automatically. The U.S. tanks will hopefully arrive this fall, maybe as late as next year. And also, Germany, meanwhile, is going to finally send Leopard tanks, their top-of-the-line tanks, and coordinate with other European allies to do the same. So the Germans have finally come off the sidelines and are standing with the right side of this fight. They're standing with freedom. Excellent and overdue. And now for America, send more. Pour it on and help Ukraine win. Help them preserve, protect, and defend their freedom. Ukraine is fighting for their freedom. Iranian protesters are fighting for their freedom. And here in America, none of us feel freedom from the threat of gun violence. It's a time in the world where freedom is under assault always and in all ways. So let's talk about freedom in America, in Iran, in Ukraine, and let's talk about freedom in our daily lives, being free from school shootings, being free from technology and phones, being free from commercialism, being free from debt, having a truly free life. Now, this is a deep one, and it's my first in-person conversation since the pandemic, and it's a great one with one of my favorite thinkers in America, a free thinker, a man who lives freedom and shares freedom, and truly one of my favorite people. The man himself, Sebastian Younger, is back. <laughs> My friend Sebastian Younger is one of the most important authors, thinkers, and public intellectuals in America. He's also one of the most interesting guys you'll ever hear. He's a true badass and an adventurer in the spirit of Ernest Hemingway. He's joined us before, twice, in episode 116 back in May of 2021 and back in episode 100 in February of 2021. And he's back to talk candidly about life, about fatherhood, about Ukraine, about freedom, about social media, about politics, and about his experience almost dying and making it back to tell the tale. And you're going to hear it. And what you're hearing now is a song by Maniskin. I love this band. They're Italian. They rock. And this is from their new album, the first one that they've done that's almost all in English. And this song features Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, the legend himself. And the song is called Gossip. It's about the all of it. All of it that we probably want to be free of. It's raw. It's honest. It's edgy, and it's truthful, just like Sebastian Younger. Sebastian's an important, inspiring, and iconic American who's shaping what this country was, what it is, and what it will be. It's my first in-person conversation in a long time, 
and it's a great one with one of my favorite thinkers in America. So let's talk about freedom. This conversation is the reason I launched this show three years ago, and I'm very happy to share it with you now. Welcome to a discussion about what it means to be free. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 207. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, this is the first conversation I've had in person with someone for the show since the pandemic. And I can think of nobody better, one of the most popular guests we've ever had in the show, one of, I think, the most interesting human beings I've ever met, one of my favorite people in the world, uh, I'm a fan of, I'm blessed to be a friend of, the great and powerful Sebastian Younger is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you so much. I love talking about stuff with you, and I'm looking forward to it today. We were saying before we got here, we just had lunch, uh, I could talk to you about anything and it would be interesting we're talking about your flip phone that i want to get to we talk about your book talk about parenthood talk about the veterans town hall talk about all things going on in the world um but i want to start with the question i ask everybody man it's it's great to have you back usually i ask them where are you and how are you but we can ground it here where are you and how are you uh well we're in the nexus club in beautiful (laughs) new york city and uh thank you nexus for hosting us uh, I live in the Lower East Side with my wife and two little girls who are uh, age six and age four. And you've been back in the city for how long, man? Uh, well, my girls are in, in school, and they started off school a year and a half ago. So the fall before last, my, uh, my eldest entered pre-K at, at the public school in the Lower East Side. And uh, so we've been back here since then. And the last time we talked virtually... I think were you in were you up up northern New York or were you in Cape Cod? You were somewhere else. Uh, yeah, we have a property in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, and uh, it's an old house from about eighteen hundred. It's deep in the woods at the end of a dead end dirt road, part of an organic farm, and there's a little community of folks there. And so we were hunkered down there during COVID, and it was a nice little micro community of people that knew each other and trusted each other. And uh, yeah, it was a it was an amazing place to spend spend COVID. As rough as COVID was, um, it, for us, it was it, it was it was an interesting, like a really interesting time because we got to experience this sort of intimate life in this small group, and that's not something that a lot of people get to experience, unfortunately. What well, you and I have been emailing and staying in touch throughout the last couple of years, especially about going back and forth between New York and yeah. the country. What's it like to be back, uh, to go from there, to go to be back in the Lower East Side? What's that like for you? Well, I feel like there's there's two different kinds of sort of wilderness, right? There's the physical wilderness of trees and hills and streams and what you know we would have in Massachusetts, and that's something that I want to teach my daughters about. Like I taught my daughter how to tell the difference between a human trail and a game trail. Mm-hmm. I was like, if you're on a game trail, you're going to have to duck under stuff because coyotes aren't that tall, and the trails that they have. Like they don't need they they don't they don't need six feet of clearance right and and so I taught her how to follow game trails so they come to a human trail you know so that's the wilderness wilderness then there's the human wilderness 
right? So where we are in the Cape, it's not a human wilderness. It's an almost completely white population, good people, but very demographically, very, very limited. Um, everyone knows each other. New York, it's a different matter. Mm. It's the greatest concentration of languages in the world. Uh, every tribe, every race, every religion, every culture, every everything is in this place. And um, we live in a mixed income neighborhood that is very demographically very, very mixed. And uh, I, it, to me, it's like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is this other form of sort of wildness, wildness. Like you don't know in human terms, like you don't, when you go into the woods, you don't know what's going to happen in the woods. When you go into the New York, you don't know what's going to happen with the people like what kind of interactions you're going to have. And I learn things every day. I am entertained. I'm moved every day, like in this city. It's extraordinary. I love that. That's so well put, man. I never thought about it that way, but that is the excitement and the surprise and the diversity of the human wilderness in New York is, is that's a great way to put it. Like it's such a shift from, the wild wilderness that I was living on. I was on a mountainside where we had a bear roam through the backyard and feet of snow and yeah. all kinds of shit. But it was, you know, teaching them about animals and about sunsets and about how to navigate and how to survive, how to build a fire, right? All the things that we did. And I'm so grateful for that time, but I'm also now grateful for this new perspective on the urban wilderness. And you're, so we were talking about this at lunch and I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, you're like, I said this to you, I think, over lunch. Like, I, the next generation of Anthony Bourdain. I wish we could follow you around on your travels throughout the world and how you navigate the world. And one thing I was kind of giving you shit about, but I admire tremendously, you have a flip phone. Can you talk about you have a flip phone, how you have a flip phone, how you navigate New York City? I, you know, I, I never didn't have a, I mean, I, I, I never had a smartphone, right? And it was a deliberate choice. I mean, it was partly laziness, right? I mean, it just this is what I got. Uh, like I stopped drinking a few years ago and then I was thinking maybe I'll just go back to drinking. I was like, no, it's too much effort. I'm just going to keep not drinking because it's just easier than drinking. Wow. Like it just requires less thought, right? Yeah. And so likewise, like it's just, it's too much effort to get a smartphone and I don't want one, right? Like the things it has to offer, I don't need and they're actively distracting, right? I, the one thing I don't want is to be distracted from the experience I'm having in the world. And I'm sorry, like a, a, a smartphone is that technology is a great tool. It can do a lot of amazing things, but the one thing, the one thing it doesn't actually do is promote your sense of I am here now, surrounded by life. Like it sucks you out of the moment and out of the place. And I'm 61. I don't want to be sucked out of my moment, right? Like this, this is all I get. This is all any of us get. And I don't want. I I, I don't need to na Google Maps to navigate. I have a glove compartment full of maps. Right, I know how to read a damn map. I got a, I got a compass. You know what I mean. I got a yeah. brain. Uh, I can. I know how to hail a cab. I don't need to know the perfect restaurant in three within three blocks. <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm obviously. I'm, I'm obviously not on Tinder. I mean, I, whatever. Like, go, you can go through the list. Like, I can do with all that. Without all that, what I can't do without is my peace of mind. And mm. I watch the behaviors of people on smartphones. I'm like, you're not good. Man. You know. I mean, I watched these. I was walking my daughter somewhere, and there were these two cops. Standing on the corner, and you know it's not like it's a crime crime riddled neighborhood, but whatever. The Old Lower East Side needs some monitoring, right? Yeah, and yeah. these two cops standing on the corner, like go scrolling through their feed, right? And I take my girl somewhere. We come back half an hour later. They're still there, 
scrolling through their feed. I'm like, are you kidding? What did you become cops for? Like, get rid of that thing. Yep. Yep. So uh, another thing I want to ask you about that we were talking about over lunch. Um, and honestly, man, like I, I consider it a privilege to be your friend and to have a meal with you and spend time with you because of your wisdom and your insight. But also what I've seen through your life and through your work, which is a discipline. You have a, a personal discipline. I don't know how else to describe it, but we were talking about kids. And I was uh, 40 when I had my first kid, 44 when I had my second, and I feel old. You were 55 when you had your first. Yeah. Yeah. But you're raising two little ones, yeah. six and three, right? Six and I uh, just turned four, yeah. Six and four? I mean, I'm sorry, six and three, six and three. Six, sorry, about, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. I got it, six yeah. and three. Mine are seven and almost four. Um, and we were talking about technology. And I've been really rigorous about keeping the boys off technology as much as possible. They don't have phones. They don't have iPads. We really try to regulate television. And when they watch television, it's usually sports, which has commercials, which is complicated. And I told you, I either put it on mute and we do drills or that we play a game called, yeah. what are they trying to sell you? Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. then we go to old school PBS. Yesterday, my kid was homesick, the little guy, and he watched Mr. Rogers, but like 1982 Mr. Rogers. Yeah. But I was telling you that I think it has to do with discipline, right? Like in order to keep your kids off technology and get them to appreciate books and nature and the world, you got to keep them off technology, but that requires more than anything else, parental discipline. So can you talk about just your approach to parenting and, and life with the kids? Well, you're not going to keep your kid. You're not going to keep your kids off technology. If you are addicted to technology, right? Like it's not happening. You're not going to keep them off the TV off the, the tablet, the phone, if you're glued to your phone, right? And, you know, my wife has a smartphone, and she actually, you know, she handles it in a, in a way that I don't think I would. I'm, I'm sort of obsessive, right? If I had a smartphone, I'd be on that damn thing, right? She's not that way. She's got a smartphone. It's on, it sits on a shelf. You know, it's a tool, and she doesn't get s sort of drawn into it. I don't, you know, I, I mean, I smoke cigarettes once in a while, right? The reason I don't have cigarettes on me is I would smoke the pack, right? right exactly. Just, so... In order to smoke a cigarette once a month, I have to not have cigarettes on me, right? It's likewise with the phone, right? So you're not going to teach your, your children to, to, to remain unaddicted to technology. I mean, addiction is the big loss of freedom in this society, right? Uh, we have a fairly free and fair political system, fairly free and fair judicial system, et cetera, et cetera. Flawed, but it, you know, it's oriented in the right direction, right? The way that we are not free, there's an internal loss of freedom that has to do with addiction, in my opinion, right? Uh, drugs, alcohol, consumerism. People buy compulsively. Then they're in debt. Then you're not free if you're in debt, right? And how, you know, people, people die with an average of $100,000 in debt. Something like that, mm -hmm. right? Like the, uh, three quarters of America dies in debt. That's an addiction mm -hmm. to consumerism, right? And the ultimate addiction, of course, is technological addiction because it's always in your pocket. It's exceedingly compelling. It plays to all of our human, healthy human desires, which is to connect to other people. But the irony, it offers you the false promise of connection and, destro and destroys that connection, the real connection. The more it destroys the real connection, the more you need the substitute for it, and then you're screwed, right? And so if you sort of think about this in sort of economic terms, Capitalism, which is an amazing tool for advancing the human race. Like, I'm all for capitalism, right? But you just think about it. Like, it has to monetize things. If capitalism doesn't monetize things, it doesn't make money, right? So 
how do you monetize human relationships? The only way to do it is to separate people and then sell them the solution to their distance, right? So if you want to monetize the mother-baby relationship, but no, 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 you don't want to breastfeed. Breastfeeding is bad for children. I mean, literally, there was an era when doctors would say, don't breastfeed your child. It's bad for your child, right? Don't breastfeed. Here's infant formula, right? How do you, like, what? No, 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 don't sleep with your kids in the same room. You need a separate room with a, with a video monitor and a, and, a, and a crib, right? Don't carry your children, for God's sake. Here's a $2,000 stroller. Like, so you, you separate and then monetize the separation by selling back a solution to something that nature like, never found to be a problem in the first place. And the, the final, final part of that is that you separate peers from each other uh, it's a very, very alienating society. You separate peers from each other, which makes people depressed and anxious. You sell them medication that fixes that, and then you sell them the substitute for human communication, which is smartphone technology, right? So Google, I think it is, if, that was, if Google was a nation, its uh, GNP would be, I think, number 16 in the world. Just to give you the scale of profit that this scam, and I think it's a scam, that this scam has allowed for, like it's in the trillions of dollars, right? So use that stuff as a tool, but it, uh, it also comes with an enormous human cost in our society. When, when I was coming up in the activist community, people would snap, like as an amen, like to- Yeah, right. When it's been, and I feel like every time I talk to you, you take me to church. And, and, uh, and I'm an atheist. Yeah, right? And, and the Church of Sebastian, the Church of Freedom, the Church of Awareness, whatever we call it. But, but that, 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 that answer, that, that, that information you just shared, like I'm going to rewind that and play it. And I hope folks listening do it again because it's very important and powerful and timely. And I want to build on that, Sebastian, because your book, Freedom, came out during the pandemic. I've given that book to more people than almost any other book I can remember. Um, I used you. to give out Ready Player One a lot for random reasons, but but it, it was uh, Freedom is is just a book that I felt was of the moment. And when we're talking about this word freedom and the loss of freedom, the gaining of freedom, you, you've become an expert on this topic, but you're probing all of us on this topic. And I guess I wanted to ask you: Is America free anymore? Yeah. You know, in your view, in this moment, here we sit in the beginning of 2023, evaluate our, you know, collective and individual rate of freedom, level of freedom, <laughs> however you would, we, you would, you would, you would approach that. Okay, so in a, in a society that's structurally unfree, like uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, Iran today, uh, many dictatorships around the world, North Korea, in, in, in societies like that, where there is no political or legal freedom, social freedom, there's always internal freedom, right? You, ha you have the freedom of the soul, the freedom of your mind, right? Until they kill you. But until then, you are on, in some way, your freedom, the only source of freedom is internal, right? If you're in a society that is structurally free, right? And we have the Bill of Rights and the amendments, we have the Constitution. We have a fairly, fairly free political system, legal system. Again, flawed, deeply flawed in many important ways that we must work on. But theoretically, it is configured in a, in a, in a, in a proper moral and free way, right? <clears throat> the application of that is a different matter. And 
we know that from George Floyd and every, everything else. Like, of course, we got to, but the, in concept, it's, it's free. In a society like that, your loss of freedom is internal, right? So you can be in a free society. So my answer would be, yes, America is a free country, except that an enormous number of people in this country are addicted to something, right? Go, go through the list, like drugs, smartphones, consumerism. They're addicted to debt, right? I mean, three, something like three, I mean, I'm going by memory here, and it may not be the right number, but something like three-quarters of Americans die in debt. I mean, it's a kind of economic servitude, right? You, can, you cannot make a living on minimum wage, right? You, I mean, you're working three jobs. If you're working three jobs to make sure that your kids have enough to eat, you're not a free person. And the classic liberal definition of freedom, going back 100 years, is economic freedom. Can the average person, hardworking person, pay for an average decent life? And if not, it's not a free society. Maybe legally it is, but economically it's not. The traditional conservative version of freedom is industry is good for society. A rising tide raises all boats. Is this a free country in the sense that industry is unfettered in its efforts to make money, right? That's the conservative definition. Somewhere in the you know, the country is going to have to integrate those two into some middle ground where both are legitimate points of view, right? I tend liberal, so I'm like a softy for the liberal argument, but I totally get the conservative argument. I totally get it, right? And, and we need that argument as well. <coughs> I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, so I, while I was writing my book, I had the chance to interview someone who had he did a very bad thing when he was young. He grew up in a, a very rough part of Brooklyn and got sucked into the wrong, the wrong business and killed somebody, right? He was a very smart kid, and he got into prison. He was looking at 25 years, and he got into prison, and, uh, and he started educating himself, the education he'd never gotten a, as a teenager, right? He read everything. He found God. He found teachers. He found, you know, whatever, and he worked and worked and worked on himself, and he got out of prison, and I was able to interview this man two weeks after he got out of a 25-year bid. They gave him, he got out in 22, something like that, on good behavior, right? So, and I asked, I was, we were in a diner, in, <laughs> diner in Midtown. I met him on a like, snowy afternoon, and I, and I said, I said, listen, I had a great conversation with him, but I said, listen, I'm actually embarrassed to ask this, but I really am curious. Is it possible to be more free in prison than out of prison? Right now, I'm asking this of a black guy, a black man in America who just did 20 years. Right? Who am I to even ask that? In my mind, I'm like, what? Right? And and he laughed. He was like, Of course it is. Are you kidding? He's like, There's no. He literally said, There's no smartphones in prison. It's hard to get drugs in prison. There's no like, you know, you know, like no girlfriend troubles that you know whatever. Like all all that messiness that are. He said, In, in prison, you got nothing but time. There are no distractions. You got nothing but time, and eventually you'll have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are, and what you're doing there, and then you're a free man. He said a lot of people on the outside never even have that conversation with themselves. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, sorry, I'm long-winded, but to answer your mm -hmm. question, structurally it's a free society and should be freer. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, there's some important losses of freedom, structural losses that I think have to be addressed. But it's in the spectrum of freedom in the world, it's an enormously free country. Right, but the downside is that because we're a wealthy country, we are vulnerable to all kinds of personal addictions that really weaken our dignity, that weaken our power, our personal power, and um, that's what that man was talking about. And if we can get ourselves to to where he's at, 
without having to do 20 years. If we can get himself mm. to where he's at, now you're talking. Mm. This is the format and the place to be long-winded. Okay. <laughs> That's All why right. I did yeah. this yeah. podcast, so we could have conversations like this without commercial interruption. And because these are the conversations that, you know, need to be had. And right. I'm lucky enough to know you and to have these kinds of conversations with you. And I wanted to do this podcast in part so I could share that because there's so much wisdom and insight packed into it and life packed into it. And so let me ask you, you know, you're now in your 60s. You don't look it. You're in great shape. Thank you. You're boxing. Uh, you know, you, you look like you kick everybody's ass. And, and uh, do you feel more free? Do you feel more or less free than other points in your life? Right. Because you're in the latter quarter of your life, maybe, right? Or third? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Can you talk about your view on your own personal yeah. freedom? You're an incredibly <clears throat> successful writer. You know, you, you've got respect. You've got a beautiful family. You've got, looks like your health. Yeah. But how do you evaluate your so, own personal freedom? So there's many different kinds of freedom, right? And so there's economic freedom, right? You know, I'm making, a, you know, a person can say I'm making enough money to not worry about paying the bills, we can go to Cancun once in a while, I'm economically free. That's a very important form of freedom. Usually, typically, you have to give up your temporal freedom in order to get economic freedom, right? You give up 40 hours a week working for the man or whatever, and then in return, you have economic freedom, right? When you're young, if, the, if at age 20, the only thing you want is economic freedom, okay, fine, you go straight into a job, you know, whatever, like, you're you're in some ways you're too mature for your in my opinion you're too much there's a there's a time in your life when you should be poor and unbounded unrestrained you know unrestrained in your choice like i want to i want to go to brazil what's brazil all about right so but if you're doing if you're thinking like that at 60 and you're not providing for your family that's not that's not really freedom it's just avoidance right mm -hmm. so so what i would say is in your 20s <clears throat> So I've thought about this, like, when was I the most free? And I, what I came up with is, look, if you're young and single, single and, and live in New York like I was in my early 30s, that's a for wonderful form of freedom. It's not a form I want now. I have a wonderful family. If I was doing that now, I'd be pathetic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so oh, I was writing my book, Freedom, and I asked myself, When's the, when have you been the most free? And so I sorted through all those ideas like I just did. <clears throat> and then I came up with this. I, I walked at one point with a couple of combat vets and another journalist who had been like holding my best friend's hand as he died from a shrapnel wound in Libya. <clears throat> and we walked along the railroad lines, which are these weird swaths of no man's land, right? These little strips of no man's land that crisscross America. The cops don't really go there. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. You can do what you want. Like we, was, we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philly, and then wheeled left wheeled west and headed for pittsburgh so we walked through ghettos we walked through factories suburbs farms woods we everything we forded rivers we were sleeping under bridges abandoned buildings cooking over fires getting our water out of creeks like somebody shot at us in pennsylvania you know whatever amazing trip right and so what i realized is that during this i called it the last patrol and I documented it in my book, Freedom, because I realized, thinking about all this, that for 400 miles or something like that, <clears throat> almost every night, we were the only people who knew where we were. No one in the world knew but us what 
stupid bridge we were curled up under, right? And like that's that's it's not the only form of freedom, thank God, but it's a great one. So it really depends where you're at in your life and what your priorities are. And you know, you don't want to mix and you don't want to get the the match wrong. You don't want the youthful freedom at, at sixty. You know, mm. I mean, maybe you do, but you, you know, think about it hard. Mm. If you're listening and you haven't been already convinced to get the book Freedom, that answer should convince you um, because the book is amazing. And that whole Last Patrol is is like the spine of it. Um, and it's just, it's so, so fucking good. Um, let me ask you, I want to, I'm, I'm, we've been talking about world events. I want to talk a bit about American politics, about Ukraine, about some other things. But you have also now talked about this entirely uh, unique experience you had where you died, almost died. Yeah. I don't want to let you explain it, yeah. but I haven't talked to you for the show since that happened. And since you started talking about it and if you would, uh, if you're willing, I would appreciate yeah. it if you would share, um, how you describe what happened, yeah. you know, without, you know, all the detail that maybe you've shared other places, but explain what happened and what you've learned from coming out on the other side of that. Yeah, so I, you know, just some background, I was an athlete when I was young. I was a really good distance runner. I ran 221 marathon. Like, I ran some pretty good times. Not world class, but I was proud of it, right? And I went through my whole life. I sailed through my whole life as this, like, very healthy dude, right? And uh, I just, I'm never going to drop dead of a heart attack or whatever. I mean, eventually someone's going to take me, but it's not going to be me clutching my, you know, clutching my chest and dropping to the floor. Probably not, right? So, and boom, one afternoon... Um, uh, a few years ago, I felt this sudden pain shoot through my abdomen. And I had sort of intermittent pain in my abdomen that I sort of ignored because I'm, like most athletes, I'm kind of a stoic, right? And if you're not screaming in agony, like, get back to work, right? <laughs> and yep. and uh, so, um, but this pain shot through my abdomen. And I was like, damn, what is that? Some crazy indigestion. What is that? And I stood up to walk it out, and I almost fell over. Um, I couldn't stand up. My blood pressure, pressure was plummeting, and I had, I had an undiagnosed aneurysm, a ballooning of the blood vessel in my pancreatic artery, which is this little artery that no one really needs to know about, right? And an aneurysm is sort of ballooning out of the, of the artery, and, and they can rupture, just like in a bicycle tire, right? And um, it was asympt pretty much asymptomatic, particularly if you ignore symptoms. <laughs> it's asymptomatic, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And, yeah. and it ruptured. It's very rare, and it's totally deadly. Like, the mortality rate is something like 70%, 7-0, right? And that's if you get to medical care quickly. I was in the woods in Truro in Massachusetts, right? And it took me, you know, then, you know, within 10 minutes, you know, I couldn't walk. My, we were in the woods. My wife dragged me out of the woods, like literally dragged me out of the woods uh, to the driveway and where, where there's a little bit of a cell phone signal and called 911. And the ambulance came. And, um, you know, by then I was going blind. Because when your blood pressure drops, everything starts to fail, right? And, and um, it took 90 minutes. So I'm bleeding out into my abdomen. It's like I've been stabbed in the stomach, except there's no stab wound. It's all internal. At that point, do you know what's happening? No. Can you I had no idea. comprehend what's going on? No, I had no body? idea. And I rebooted a bit. I went into compensatory shock. Your body clamps down, pools all the blood where it's needed. And I sort of revived. I was like, oh, I'm okay. Maybe, maybe I don't need to go to the hospital. You know? And my wife was like, no, 
you were in and out of consciousness 10 minutes ago. You were going blind. You're going to the hospital. This is why married men live longer. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Their, wife, their wives are like, no, he's going to the hospital. Yeah. Don't listen yeah. to him. You got a battle right? buddy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it took, so it took 90 minutes to get me to the ER. And right when we hit the ER, I went out of compensatory shock. My body couldn't keep itself together, together any longer. And I went into hemorrhagic shock, which is the last stage before you die. Right, convulsive shaking, loss of consciousness. I mean, I was swirling the, you know, swirling the drain, right? And <clears throat> I was, um, my blood pressure was 60 over 40, right? Which is fumes, you're running on, so I lost, I probably lost half my blood volume into my abdomen, out of my arterial system, into my abdomen. And so the, they, they figured out pretty quickly what was going on, internal abdominal hemorrhage, deadly, deadly, deadly thing, right? The problem is if you have a stab wound, they know where to look. They know where to put their thumb, right? If it's internal, they have no idea. It's a bowl, big bowl of spaghetti in your abdomen, right? They don't know. I mean, they don't, like, they, they, right. So they have me on the thing, and they start cutting my neck open to put a line into my jugular, right? It's a little slice. They like, and um, To pump blood in. Right. So they can't yeah. get enough through your arm, right. typically, like, put right. In through your jugular, right? Because they a massive. I needed a massive transfusion. I needed ten units of blood, right? So while they're doing that, I'm now I'm headed out the door, right? I mean I'm 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 minutes from death, but I'm conscious, right? And I'm lying there, and this big black pit opens up underneath me. And I just got to say right now, I'm an atheist. Not only am I a non-mystic, I'm actually an anti-mystic. Like I actually actively hate that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like just so, just to get my credentials yep. on the table, yep. just yep. so you know where I'm coming from. This big black pit opens up underneath me, and I realize I'm getting pulled into it. And if I get pulled into it, I'm never coming out. I'm never coming back. And I didn't know I was dying. I mean, you have to understand how messed up your brain is when you're at 60 over 40. You know, you're like the worst drunk in the bar. Like you don't understand shit, right? But I knew that if I went in that hole, I'm not coming back. And I didn't want to go in that hole, right? And right then, my dead father appeared above me. Now, I'm still conversant. I'm still talking to the doctor. I'm not in la-la land, right? I mean, I'm still here, right? My dead father appeared above me with his arms open and welcoming me. He's like, it's okay. You can come with me. It's going to be okay, right? And you heard him speak. Well, he wasn't speaking. He communicated. I mean, it's, and I don't know if I saw, you know, it's, it's, the senses are very weird when you're in yeah. that state of mind. So his presence was there and he uh -huh. communicated benevolent, like, it's okay. You can come with me. Don't, don't fight it. Right. You're all right. Come with me. It's going to be okay. And I was like, come with you. You're dead. <laughs> I'm not going with you. What are you talking about? Yeah. Right. And I said to the doctor, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. I'm going. And uh, they started transfusing me. And then a, it, it, that, that was the beginning of a six-hour nightmare where they were looking for the bleed. And, you know, I was conscious the whole time. They put a catheter in my <sighs> groin and were, like, searching through my venous system looking for the leak. And I was on the fluoroscope, and I got so much – I was on the fluoroscope for so long, I got radiation burns on my back. I got a big red square patch on my back, right? My kidneys are failing. So I was in agony. It's like kidney stone agony. For six hours without any pain meds because my my um, vitals were so low, and they finally found it, right? And um, uh, they uh, and they embolized it by catheter, and then carted me up to the ICU. It's like three in the morning at this point, so this shit's been going on for almost twelve hours. I mean, I can't tell you how uh, 
how hard that was, right? And I started to realize, at some point in that process, I started to realize, oh, they're trying to save my life. Like, this mm. isn't a, a, a tummy ache, right? This is the stakes, because I remember the nurse was like, Mr. Younger, try to keep your, hand, your eyes open. And I was like, why do you want me to keep my eyes open? And she, she said, so we know you're still with us. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. that, are those the stakes, right? Yeah. And um, anyway, they saved my life. And they, they took me up to the ICU, and I woke up the next morning, you know, like very confused. And the nurse came in. She had an awesome Boston accent. This is Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. She was like, Mr. Younger, like, freaking unbelievable. You survived. Like, freaking miracle. Everyone thought you were going to die, but you didn't die. Like, it's, the, the doctors can't believe it. Right? That kind of thing. I was like, oh, my God. They talk in Boston accents in hell. Like, I, like have I, have I, I guess I didn't make it. Like, here we are in the middle of Goodwill hunting. Right? Like, I'm like, oh, my God. And she was this wonderful lady in her 60s who looked like tough as nails. She looked like she'd buried three husbands. Like, she was amazing. Right? So she gave me the, like, lowdown on how I almost died. And um, then she left the room. And I was, like, sitting there. I'm vomiting blood. I'm completely messed up. And I'm too weak. To, I can't even sit up. I'm so weak. Right? I was just thinking, like, oh, my God, I almost died. My little girls almost lost their daddy. Like, my wife almost lost her Like, are you kidding? And uh, I had no idea, right? And she came back an hour later and, and said, said, how are you doing? And I was like, not so good. Like, I'm thinking about what you told me. It's terrifying. And she said, you know what? Instead of thinking about it like something scary, think about it like something sacred. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> what, what what a way, what a thing to do with it and then and so of course i started thinking about it and i was like okay i went to the ultimate front line i've been going to front lines my whole life yeah. there's things to learn there right it's the the, the liminal place like you know, where like and i've gone to front lines and come back and told people what i learned right i like this is the ultimate front line and i've been i was allowed to i was allowed to experience dying without having to die i was allowed to go back with the treasure, with the information, right? What am I going back? What what am I going? What what a value am I going back with, right? What did I learn out there that could be helpful to me, to other people? Like that's as a writer, as a person, as a human being, as a thinker. Like that's now your job. You you were allowed to have a sacred process. Like don't waste it. And so what I'm doing now is writing a book called Pulse. Basically, what I learned on that. On that threshold, I I don't want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I just I want to let you keep talking. Yeah. And I think that I'm. We were talking about the next book, and I can't wait for this book. And I feel that way about every book that you write. But I can't wait for this book because, you know, you have been to combat zones all over the world. You've been on the forefront of so many important conversations and this one is i think the most important one at least that i look forward to especially because you've you know had this perspective of being a father yeah and can i ask you to share first of all thank you for sharing all yeah. of that because that's a traumatic thing and sharing it is hard and it's a gift and i'm grateful for it and i know anyone listening is grateful yeah. for it and i want to make sure i communicate that to you but we were talking about our kids that are about the same age yeah. And the, the crazy questions or the amazing questions they ask us. Today, my son asked me, Daddy, how many people are going to be dead in 100 yeah. years? 
Yeah. And I said, uh, I don't know, bud. And he, then he said, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I said, right. okay, bud. And we, we shifted the conversation, talked about that, talked about some other things. But you talked about the conversation you had with your daughter about love. Yeah. Can you share yeah. that, please? Yeah. I mean, the thing about children is they have no preconceptions about anything. So they, they see everything totally literally. And they see truths that we have learned to ignore. So I asked my, at the time, she was two and a half. She just turned three. She was two and a half. It was last summer, and I and I said to her, I was out like playing with her in the woods, and I, I was like, I said, Daddy loves you so much. Do you know that? And she just got all shy, you know. And I was like, Do you know what love means? She wouldn't answer, and I asked again, like the third time. I said, You know, what what's, what do you think love means? And she said, Yes, Daddy, I know what love means. It means stay here, which is such an elemental definition of love, mm. right? I mean, no adult. It everything else is footnotes to that. Right. But the adults get absorbed in the footnotes, the complex footnotes like, you know, I'm breaking up with you because I love you. Like, no, you're not. You're breaking up with me because you don't love me. Mm. You know, come on. Like, don't bullshit me. Right. Stay here. Like, stay here. And of course, that's super important to a child. Like, if you don't stay here, they're dead. They know that. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Right. So that's the core of love is like we need to stick together to survive. That's I mean, that's how humans humans do it. Right. Like we are willing to die for each other. No other animal does this for each other, right? Chimpanzees, when they're... So chimpanzees wage a form of warfare, and groups of male chimpanzees will go into a rival territory and one by one beat the individual males to death from the rival troop, right? Those males start screaming in terror when they're getting beaten to death. It's basically a gang fight. It's six on one, right? They'll scream in terror. His buddies, what do you think they do? Do they go help them? No, they don't. They're like, oh, Joe's getting beaten to death. Maybe I'll go this way, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And maybe I can even mate with his mate. You know, I mean, it's completely self-serving. Humans will die for each other because they love each other, right? And it's what allows humans to survive. We don't have claws. We don't have teeth. We can't run. We can't climb. What do we have? We have the fact that we will sacrifice for one another. And in a group, we are unstoppable, right? Mm-hmm. And it all goes down to stay here. Mm. Stay here, mm. and uh, so I mean the other on the flip side, well, not the flip side of it, but the uh, you know the the perspectives are amazing. So my almost six year old is sort of engaging with the idea of death. She saw her grandmother die. I mean, like was with her grandmother. We were all with my mom for the last two weeks, right to the last moments, right. And at one point, she you know makes children anxious. They know, like they start to figure it out. And she said. She said to me, she said, Daddy, you know what my biggest problem is in, in life? I was like, no, you little five-year-old, what mm. is your biggest problem in life, mm. right? What, is, what could it possibly be, right? And she said, my biggest problem in life is existence. I'm like, oh, wow. my, oh, my God. I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, my biggest problem in life is existence because, because I exist, it means eventually I'm going to have to die. And I don't want to die. So that means my biggest problem is existence. I'm like... Oh, you poor thing. You're overthinking things like I do. Like, you got the bad this is, gene. This is Sebastian's daughter. <laughs> That's right. For sure. You, yeah. you, you got the, gene- the bad genetics. No, like, don't, the don't, good don't genetics. do that. Don't the do that. The good genetics. <laughs> the good genetics, man. I mean, it's, I, I can't wait to one day read the books your, your girls write. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, this also, a lot of what you just shared comes from Tribe, which is yeah. an amazing book that you wrote also that I think was at an important time and was interwoven into a lot of the work that I've done in the veterans community, and you and I have been 
friends for a long time now. I don't know how long, yep. over a decade, right? Yep. Um, and our paths have crossed in, crossed in many ways. And I want to I want to get a bit about the veterans town halls that you're working on, which I think build on tribe and build on this sharing that you're doing and and at this moment in America. But I want to ask you about something right now. Um, this country, right? I mean, you and I were talking about whether it's going to be Trump versus Biden. Yeah. And, you know, what happens afterward? Um, you don't talk about politics overtly in your book, and you probably don't talk about it that much. But can you analyze, given all of this rich context you have and going to the other side and back, how do you assess this country right now? Where are we? And, and maybe we try to dig into this a lot in this show. What do you think is coming? What do you think I, is next? I think they're waiting for the Rykoff Younger ticket. <laughs> it will definitely be an independent <laughs> ticket because the parties ain't having us, yeah. man. Yeah. If you run right now, you're going to have a lot of supporters. Uh, Absolutely. Younger, younger for governor? Yeah, younger for governor. Yeah, younger right. Governor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, um, I don't, I'm not an expert in this. I read the Times every day. You know, like I try to make sense of what I'm seeing my dad was a refugee from two wars. His dad was Jewish. He was born in Dresden, Germany. The year of the Reichstag fire, they left because they knew what was coming. So his father was a journalist, right? So they went to Sp he could live anywhere. So they went to Spain. And um, my dad was there till he was 13 when the fascists came in under Franco and they fled. And they went to Paris. And then they were in Paris until the fascists came in and they came to America. And he, and he stayed in America because he said to me, fascism will never come to this country, right? And thank God he passed away in 2012. Like, he didn't have to watch the shit show of January 6th. And one of the things that really offended me about January 6th, of the many things, that offended me about January 6th, I mean, the sight of having a policeman beat, beaten almost to death with the Blue, Blue Lives Matter flag on a pole. Like, that no one... That would, I mean, that no one in that crowd saw the irony and the grotesqueness of that is amazing. Like, and, but one of the things that really offended me about that is that so many people have died for their own freedom and the freedom of others, right? It's the one of the few things people will die for, that and their families, right? And their community, right? That freedom. And it was couched in terms of the, that, that, that disgraceful riot in our sacred capital was couched in terms of people defending their freedom, right? And people use the word freedom when they don't want to be morally scrutinized. It's as long as you're like, oh, I, you know, I'm defending my freedom. So don't, you know, you're not allowed to ask any more questions because freedom's sacred. And so as soon as I say freedom, back off. I don't want to be, I don't want to be interrogated about the details here. I just said the, the F word, right? So like back off, that means I get to do what I want, right? And it actually doesn't. It actually, it actually, it actually incurs a higher standard, not a lower standard, right? And so I think in this country, like I looked, I looked at the Spanish Civil War, I wrote a piece about it, and it's in the, it will be in the paperback edition of, uh, of Freedom, which comes out July 4. The way Franco came in was the, 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 the conservatives, you know, there was an alliance, sort of an unholy alliance of, of, of military, corporate interests, and the Catholic Church. Right, and the liberals, a liberal coalition, won the the election like handily, like like they 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 won the national election, and Franco said, 
the fact that they won proves it was rigged. Mm -hmm. Because a conservative Catholic country would never elect a government of Jews, communists, and homosexuals, right? I mean, you literally, it was almost literally the same language you sometimes hear today, right? Uh, the same sort of like, you know, gallery of rogues or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. and, and so he said, therefore, because they won, it was rigged. And because it was rigged, we have to kill them because they stole our freedom, right? And that started a, a three or four year civil war that killed something like 500,000 Spaniards or something like that. I think 1% of this entire Spanish population was executed for their political beliefs, not just killed in combat, was actually stood against a wall and right. shot, right? So that's exactly, I mean, what Franco did to take power in Spain was exactly what Trump was trying to do, only he did not have the support of the military. Franco had the veterans from a 20-year failed war in Morocco who were embittered, they were felt forgotten, they were the, the defenders of Spanish honor, and he weaponized those guys. He weaponized their anger, right? And in this country, there was a, a veteran, com veteran component to January 6th, to sort of maggots or some of the Oath Keepers and all that, you know, those guys. But at the end of the day, the military itself was not going to become Trump's personal security guard, right? And that's sort of what saved us. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the institution that my, left, my fellow lefties think of as the least democratic part of America actually on January 6th was the most democratic, yeah. right? The, the U.S. military. So what happens next? You, you, you know, be a weatherman here. Tell yeah. me what, what's coming. Is it a, is it a perfect storm? Is it no, so, I, what, what, is, what is coming? What, what do you see in this country that you understand and explore and feel yeah. so deeply when you see what looks like, you know, you and I were, were, were talking about, will Trump get the nomination? Right. You know, I think he likely will. Um, and if he doesn't, he'll run independently. And I think DeSantis and Christy Nome and Carrie Lake and others will wait. And it comes down to whether or not Biden and Trump are alive when the election happens, if they're healthy, if they have right. some kind of health issue. But even bigger than that, do you think the country is going to get darker? Is it going to get more violent? Is it going to, is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? I hate to put it in those yeah. terms, but when you think about the America your daughters will grow up in— right. What do you predict, not just hope, but what do you predict it'll look like? Well, I mean, first of all, the authoritarian regimes of Europe, both the communists and the fascists, I mean, they're both fascists, right? They're both the left and right wing authoritarian regimes um, post-World War II, I think every single one eventually collapsed. Like even Franco, I mean, he died in bed. Uh, but as soon as he died, Spain turned into a democracy. So. So, uh, you know, I think what I would say is that authoritarianism and the sort of radicalism that we're seeing in some parts of the left and a lot of the right, right, that radicalism actually is a great short-term strategy, but it actually doesn't work very well, right? And it doesn't work very well partly because it's anti-rational. I mean, you, at the end of the day, you have, you're accountable to reality, right? You're accountable to the force of gravity and economics and everything else. And if you think that those things will just go away because you have a narrative, like, you're wrong. Eventually, you're, you jump out a window and you don't believe in gravity. Eventually, you're going to hit the ground, right? I mean, and that's true politically as well. And so what we saw in the midterm is that that kind of rabid 
nationalistic fantasy world that the right wing was engaged in about stop the steal and all that other nonsense, right? Like, it actually didn't work very well. It didn't get very many people elected, right? And which is enormously reassuring. And I'm glad, you know, woke culture is pretty damn obnoxious on the other side of the aisle, right? It's not storming capitals anytime soon, but it's pretty obnoxious. I don't think it works very well politically, you know? So, uh, you know, I think what's going to happen is a sort of like curving toward back towards the middle because I think the short-term successes of radicalism on both sides actually are not playing out very well in the long term. And I think there'll be a sort of Darwinian process where the non-extremist figures, with a few exceptions, but basically the non-extremist figures on both sides are going to be one, the ones that sort of win the Darwinian contest, political contest, and move into positions of, of, of power. And so, I, I, you know, what I'm more worried about is the, is the culture. I mean, I think the political, legal world will sort of stabilize. January 6th, I think, was the danger point, and it didn't, it could have happened. Look, they could have killed Pelosi and Pence. I mean, they literally could have killed Easily. them. Yeah. Easily, yeah. right? And yeah. then what? I yeah. mean, then you're really talking civil war. It's not, I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. And, um, uh, and those guys are cowards anyway, let's face it. Mm. I mean, the people that were in that building are cowards, right? And I don't think they were willing to die for an idea. I really don't. Mm. I think they were willing to pretend that they were willing to die, but they weren't willing to literally die. And you have to be willing to die to overthrow a, a government. And for your freedom, right? And I want to build on that and, and ask you to talk about Ukraine because um, you shared with me some of your uh, early writing in a, in a letter to the Ukrainian people, basically, yeah. as a preface to your um, forthcoming paperback. Yeah. And um, your, your, your message on Ukraine, your thoughts on Ukraine are especially timely and profound in a time where, I guess maybe I'll ask it this way, is... Sebastian, is, is Ukraine more American than America right now? <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, mean, I think they look to us as a sort of template for how to have, a, have a, a free and fair country, right? And, you know, meanwhile, they have a huge corruption problem, as do, you know, as do we in different ways, right? I, I mean, the whole lobbyist industry is basically a form of corruption, right? And, and, uh, uh, but so, so my book Tribe is being used in Ukraine as a way of um, dealing with veterans after the war. So uh, I mean, I, that was news to me. I did, someone told me that. It's, it's been translated in Ukrainian. My pu the Ukrainian publisher asked me to write a letter to the Ukrainian people. And in it, I referenced what I found in my research in freedom, which is that small humans are the only species where the smaller adversary can defeat a larger one. If you look at the early years of MMA, mixed martial arts, you had huge mismatches in size and weight, right? And the 120-pound guy sometimes could handle the 250-pound guy, no problem. That's not true with chimpanzees, right? It's not true with elk. It's not true with elephant. You know, only in humans, right, can the smaller individual beat the larger individual in a one-on-one -on -one fight, right? Likewise, smaller groups of humans can defeat larger groups, and they do it all the time. And if they couldn't, there'd be no freedom, right? If they couldn't, the largest fascist megastates would run the world, and... You know, the, the, um, in the 1600s, the Montenegrins defeated the Ottoman Empire. The Montenegrins were like practically Stone Age people in the 1600s. They defeated the Ottomans, right? The Taliban defeated America, right? Like, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have an air force. They didn't have artillery. Right. They barely had sneakers, right. right? And they defeated America, right? And they defeated in the sense that they fought longer than we were willing to fight, right? Which 
sometimes happens in a playground fight with a small kid versus the small kid just keeps getting up and like, so that's the, so I wrote a letter to the Ukrainian people about the fact that history is with them, right? That smaller group, as often as not, the smaller group wins. And, uh, and my book Freedom explains the dynamics of that. It's divided into run, fight, and think. And those are the three ways of maintaining your freedom against a superior, like a superior power. That's the true of the labor movement, the Irish against the English, the Montenegrins, I go through history, like they're the Scythians against the Iranian, the Persians. So I was basically like, look, you're, you're doing this for the world because if Putin wins this, then all, all the other countries of Eastern Europe are actually like in danger. And if you stop Putin in Ukraine, you basically saved everybody. And, uh, and not only that, it will destroy Putin. I mean, as the um, one of the one of the sort of brainier magazines pointed out, Foreign Affairs, I think, pointed out, there was a question: Is Putin the greatest security threat to Russia right now? It's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was Trump the greatest security threat to America? Oh, totally. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, can I ask one part yeah. of you of your letter to the Ukrainians? was about the three components that allow a smaller force to beat a larger one. Yeah. And I remember one of them was the role of women. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, can you, can you so I looked about at the commonalities between, between like the commonalities between the labor movement in America, you know, about 100 years ago, um, up against corporate interests, the government and the National Guard. Right. Uh, I looked at the Irish, the, you know, all through the sweep of history. And so I were like, what are the common elements of successful underdog groups? Right. So, and the Ukrainians have all of them, right? So, first of all, um, you need leaders who are willing to die. Like die, D-I-E, die for the cause. And if you have leaders who are hiding behind the people that they lead, you know, it's not going to work. So, in the, when the Irish were fighting the English in the um, Easter Rising, uh, uh, the, um, of 1916, was it? 1916? Um, their leader in Dublin took so many risks under gunfire that his aides were like constantly, dra- you know, got wounded twice in a week, right? His aides were constantly dragging him out of the line of fire. They're like, we need you. You, you got to stop doing this. Like, get, so you need leaders like that. Zelensky's clearly like that, yep. right? The CIA offered to evacuate him because, of course, what do you think would happen if the Russians caught Zelensky? How, not, how, you know, like, how unpleasant would that be for him, right? Nope, I'm staying right here with my people, right? So you need leaders who are willing to die. You need a transcendent cause, right? You you can't like, we want to take over Crimea. That doesn't get people to die, right? What gets people to die is I'm fighting for the freedom, my freedom and the freedom of my children, of my people. Like that's a transcendent cause. So you need leaders who are willing to die. You need a transcendent cause. And in these complex struggles, I mean, I don't mean World War I machine gun fire. I mean, anyone can fire a machine gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, these complex struggles that happen within a society, like the labor movement, um, Ireland, the Easter Rising, you need women. Because women legitimize uh, a, a movement. So if you just have a bunch of dudes in the street, it's a riot. Mm. If you have men and women in the street, women carrying babies, it's not a riot. It's a movement. And it's a movement that's very hard to use violence against, right? Killing women, women in large numbers is sanctioned, it's frowned upon in ways that killing men in large numbers just isn't quite, right? The optics are horrible, even for real dictators, right? Even the Saddam Husseins of the world hesitate to mow down hundreds of women in the town square, right? I mean, mm. it happens, mm. but so 
what I looked at the labor movement in Massachusetts, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, in 1912, and the textile mills were shut down by these strikes, and they called in the National Guard with fixed bayonets, and you know the men, the men were in the front line of the strike, right? And they were, and they got their hats handed to them, right? I mean, they like you can imagine, right? And then the strike organizers had the idea of putting women on the front lines, mm -hmm. right? And these these boys in the, in the National Guard didn't know what to do. They had sisters, they had mothers, they had children, you know, whatever. And they didn't know what to do with the women. And one police captain said in frustration, he said this great line. He said, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. Mm -hmm. And when they did that, the dynamics changed. And they also used women for intelligence, for sort of covert, covert missions. Women, women have a lateral, men are hierarchical, which is very powerful. You know, the, the top of the pyramid says, charge the machine guns. Everyone charges the machine guns. Half of them die. The other half take the trenches. That's a typical male hierarchy, right? Top, top down, right? Women don't operate that, thank God, right? I, I mean, you need both to win a fight, right? Mm. So women are lateral. Their, their, their relationships are lateral, and they actually don't like the idea of a, like, hierarchy. I mean, they sort of, they sort of rebel against hierarchies, which is enormously healthy also, right? Mm -hmm. So... Their, their networks, social networks, are lateral, which means you can't decapitate them. Mm. They're like, like terrorist organizations, mm -hmm. right? Like, you can't decapitate them. They're, they're interrelated cells. They're very hard to penetrate. And they're great at espionage and all that other stuff. And they would, you know, these women were like cozying up to some of the boys in the National Guard and mm -hmm. in the police, mm -hmm. you know, pretending to be interested in a romantic involvement. Mm -hmm. And just stealing information, mm. right? So the dudes can't do that. You need the win. So you get those two together, the hierarchy plus the lateral network. You have a situation that governments have an extremely hard time dealing with. Which is Iran right now. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If it was just men being killed or tor you know, tortured, tormented in right. Iran, the world would care a lot less. But when you see like young women, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not okay. Um, I, I told you this before we started recording. I wish you would come and talk just to America like Sebastian's fireside chats once a week. <laughs> I really do. And I know that you have a process for your books and your books are such a gift to the world. But I think especially in moments like this, I just love hearing you talk, man. And I'm, and I'm grateful for, for everything you share and this fucking amazing laser beam that is your mind um, navigating through the world. Um, for our Patreon members, I hope Sebastian will give a quick fire a uh, couple of questions afterward after we get through this section. But in, in, as we wrap this up, because I want to let you go, you got to pick up your kids, you got to yeah. navigate New York City with your flip phone, um, <laughs> you got to watch some MMA. Um, yeah. Can I ask you? Well, number one, I want to say, I hope you do think about some kind of public office or something like that. I know you're so amazing at your craft and, and what you do and you live this life, but I feel like your voice is so important right now. And I just want to tell you that if you ever did run for anything or serve an office, you would have a tribe behind you. And, and I'm only doing it with you, man. You, know, me, you and me. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll be your campaign manager. How about <laughs> okay. that? How about that? Um, I don't know. Well, well, you could run for governor of Massachusetts. Uh, all right. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. okay. You're yeah. the first person to announce your candidacy here. <laughs> I asked Ruben Gallego. I asked some other people, uh, you know, to announce on here. But you can formally announce <laughs> okay. younger for governor. Younger for governor. Yeah, yeah, younger, younger for governor. For governor. Yeah, He's go. coming, America. Um, 
Having gone through all this, man, your life is this is amazing journey. Um, having gone to that other place and seen the black hole and come back, um, what, what's your advice for folks? Is there one thing you would say to folks, or maybe to your daughters, if they're gonna, you know, if they if they could listen to this, and maybe it's the older version of themselves, and you know, they're living in this moment. What, what's your advice for folks out there? Because a lot of you're you're really great. I have to say this a bit. You're really great at communicating pain and struggle. And Ken Burns was on this show and talked about grievance. Yeah. And you and I have talked about, there's a lot of pain in this country right now. And there is just exhaustion and yeah. grievance and emotion and a lot of it. But there's also hope and there's you know this, this unique spirit and camaraderie and community and you're building on that and the Veterans Town Hall. People should check out the work you're doing there on Veterans Town Hall, bringing that around the country. But what is your... What's your advice to people out there who are listening, who look to you as, as an inspiration, as a role model, as a, as a bit of an oracle? I think the only way to have a free society is for the people in it to value, to value freedom. And the only way to be individually free is to not be addicted. And whatever that means to you, mm. right? Whatever it means, but addiction addiction is how society makes you work for them for free. That's what addiction is, right? And if you want to take that route, go for it, but you're not free. And so, and uh, you know, like um, addiction can be take so many different forms, but when, when you're doing something that's more interesting to you than the world is, you're addicted, right? And that's how society gets its hooks in. And most of those hooks are economic, right? The addictions that are the most dangerous, okay, I know people that drink too much, right? whatever, that, that's, not gonna, that's not gonna ruin the country, right? But the whole economic system based on a sort of addictive consumerism that puts people in hawk their entire lives while corporations are getting immensely wealthy and buying influence in the government so that then the government creates a system that furthers their interests and disempowers people that that could never happen if people were not the first chain in that addictive process. And you can, you know, if they're going to screw you, at least be clear-minded about it. Like have a clear mind while they're doing it, right? And if if you're addicted to anything, you are not clear-minded, and you won't even know they're doing it to you. And it starts with you. You don't need to store many capitals, right? You need to like take care of, take care of business at home, like the gentleman I spoke to uh, about who had gotten out of prison. Like, you need to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are, and then you're a free man. Thank you. Thank you. You've given us um, an injection of freedom. <laughs> really, man. And <laughs> I'm not addicted to too many things, but all of us are going to be addicted to your words for now <laughs> and for the future. But you're a, you're a tremendous leader and, 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 and just such a gift to us. And I'm so glad you're not dead. <laughs> and, thank you and, and that you're here with us and that you've joined me on this show it's a real privilege this is why i wanted to do this show so that i could bring conversations like this yeah. to people and i know they will draw strength from it yeah. and inspiration and and freedom so thank you my friend for this conversation and for all that you do it was a pleasure i really enjoy it thank you man stay vigilant yeah
How good is that guy? I think it's one of my favorite conversations we've ever had on this show. I love Sebastian Younger. I talk about it all the time. The helpers are out there. And Sebastian is truly one of them. Get his books. Follow him anywhere he's speaking. Help me get him to run for governor of Massachusetts or maybe president. Go to his website, SebastianYounger.com. Definitely check out his book, Freedom. Check out Tribe. Check out The Perfect Storm. Check out everything he's ever written. And you can check out Veterans Town Halls that he's doing all across the country at VetsTownHall.org. He's a voice of truth. He's a voice of freedom. And he's definitely a helper. My mother used to say a long time ago, whenever there would be any really catastrophe that was on the, in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Unless you're new here, you know the deal. Check the hashtag, look for the helpers on social media, and share yours. Tell me what's got you inspired. Tell me the person you've seen that's running in when others run out. Share it with me on social. Look for the helpers anywhere you find me or you find independent Americans. When you're on social media, play Guess the Guest with me every Wednesday night. Follow me on social. Look for the hashtag Guess the Guest. I will post a mysterious image. This week, I post an image of Sebastian Younger, but Sebastian was blacked out from his time in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. He writes about it in Tribe, which reminds me, also check out the amazing film he did called Restrepo. And check out all his work with our friend Tim Hetherington, who we tragically lost in Libya, that was Sebastian's partner for many years. Check that all out. You can find out more in the show notes or go to independentamericans.us. You can also join the fight for freedom by joining our Patreon community, the people who help keep this show running. You can join for just five bucks. You'll get exclusive content. You'll get discounts. You'll get a special conversation with Sebastian where he makes some book recommendations. And a big shout out to all our Patreon members, especially our newest patron, ML. I don't know what the M or the L stands for, but much love to you, ML. Thank you for joining our Patreon crew. You're helping us power this work because America's more divided than ever. But we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are fighting to change that. To bring more freedom of the good kind and adding light to contrast to heat of all the other political and news nonsense out there. If you're among the roughly 50% of Americans who are independent, this is your show. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, but you're not a diehard and you're independent curious, this is your show. If you're a concerned American who cares about the future of your country and freedom in the world, this is your show. All are welcome. I invite you to join us and be a part of the solution. The independent movement continues to grow. The biggest party in America is no party at all. But there are more of us by the day. Yeah, it can be lonely being independent sometimes, but leadership is often lonely. You'll be the saddest part of me, a part of me that will never be mine. It's obvious tonight is gonna be the loneliest. You'll still be. But it's getting less and less lonely for independence all across America. This is another track by Maniskin, or Mainskin, I'm not sure how you say it, but it's Monskin, Mainskin, whatever it is, it's awesome. And this song is called The Loneliest, and it is dope. The whole record is. 
It's fiery, it's fast, it's angry, it's sexy, it's slow, and it's sad in all the right ways. And I'm going to continue to share good music with you because it's a key part of this show and it's a key part of America. And so is the intersection of music and culture and politics and art and, of course, sports. And the NFL playoffs are a key beating heart of it. And they continue to be amazing and interesting and inspiring and frustrating. And as for my Giants, well, that was fun. They're out. But we had a great run. A bad ending to a great season. A terrible ending. But a fun season where my boys fell in love with the game. And we had lots of fun as a family around the game and around sports. There's lots of leadership lessons in sports and especially among this Giants team that's now been led by Coach Brian Dable, who's turned the whole franchise around, in my view, should be Coach of the Year. He's the coach that Giants fans have been waiting for, and the best since Bill Parcells. He's leading by example. He's bringing people together, and he's changing the narrative. That's what Coach Dable and these Giants did. Now, I'm still not long on our QB, Daniel Jones, and I'm fine with them letting him go. Just keep rebuilding the culture. Get a stud wide receiver, a middle linebacker, and find a way to keep Saquon and give him the ball more. I love my Giants, even after this weekend. But they're out. But still in. Cincinnati Bengals are going to go to Kansas City to fight the Chiefs. And I'm picking Kansas City. They are too good, they are too deep, and they are at home. And it's hard to bet against a team at home in the championship games. And San Francisco will travel to Philly to play the dreaded Eagles. And I hate to say it, I don't want it to happen. I'm definitely rooting for the 49ers, but I'm picking the Eagles. This team is a machine. It should be another great weekend of games. And no more Giants. My son is shocked that there's not another game for the Giants until August. But we've got the draft next month. We've got the Super Bowl coming up. And there's a new season of BattleBots. If you've never seen that, it is awesome and amazing and highly recommended. And F1 starts in March in Bahrain. There's lots to look forward to, even in the darkest days of winter, including the paperback release of Sebastian's book Freedom this summer, so look for that. And every Thursday at 11 a.m., remember to look out for me in a weekly segment on News Nation with Marnie Hughes. Every week I'm on with Marnie and we talk about national security, vets, and political stuff with a special focus on Ukraine. So that's every Thursday about 11 a.m. Eastern. You can find News Nation on your cable dial or online at newsnation.com. And later in the week, Join me every Friday night at about 8.45 Eastern, also on News Nation, where I join Chris Como for a new segment that we call I'll Drink to That. You can have a drink, you can call in and sound off, and you can join me and Chris as I raise a glass to some of the best stories of the week. It's kind of like look for the helpers on steroids with whiskey. But check us out every Friday, 8.45 on News Nation. Have a drink, join us, call in, and let's hang and we can celebrate some freedom. I hope you enjoy the football. I hope you enjoy the winter. I hope you enjoy the music. And most of all, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sebastian because he gives us an appreciation for every day. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, something we all appreciate a bit more after this conversation today. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together, especially now. And we're all fighting for freedom, each in our own way. In Ukraine, in Iran, in America. In our heads, 
in our hearts, and in our every day. I'm your host, Paul Rakoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. And stay vigilant, America. Tonight is gonna be the loneliest. Powered by Righteous Media.